0: I'm Myrna McCollum, Métis Cree Lawyer and passionate promoter of Trauma-Informed Lawyering. Welcome to my new podcast, The Trauma-Informed Lawyer, brought to you in partnership with the Canadian Bar Association. I believe that law schools and bar courses are missing a critical competency requirement in their curriculum, Trauma-Informed Lawyering. Becoming a trauma-informed lawyer will, among other things, challenge you to critically reflect on your personal behaviors, beliefs, and biases, call on you to positively transform the way you approach advocacy, guide your practice to avoid doing further harm to others, and ask that you commit to remaining open to learn new and old knowledge you didn't know you needed before beginning your career. Your education starts right here, right now. This podcast comes to you from the traditional, unceded territories of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam people. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Trauma-Informed Lawyer podcast. Today I am sharing an interview with you that I held with a friend of mine, Helgi Mackey, Huggy is a former large law firm partner turned legal innovation consultant and coach whose work advocating for trauma informed lawyering has been published in the Canadian Supreme Court Law Review. She believes that harnessing the courage to face the discomfort of trauma has the power to improve the legal system, including increasing access to justice and well being for both clients and lawyers in every practice area. Professionally, she saw that no one is exempt from traumatic stress responses from the corporate boardrooms of Bay Street to courtroom hearing sex assault cases. Personally, she learned that facing trauma despite discomfort or even stigma has life-changing benefits that defied her expectations. The more she has faced the personal impact of trauma, the healthier and happier she has become personally and professionally, the other choice she tried unsuccessfully was living a double life to try and hide the impact of trauma. Helge's work is inspired by her mother who died by suicide and who never experienced the legal system as a place to receive help instead of harm. She hopes that the profession will stop trying to live in a collective double life of strength on the surface and suffering underneath. And she hopes one day lawyers will be emboldened to face the uncomfortable truth that many clients hope working with a lawyer will have healing benefits or at least not result in additional harm, even if this isn't part of a lawyer's job description. Helgi Mackey is a graduate of the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law with an MA from Carleton University She joined the Bar in 2003 and the New York Bar in 2005. You can find her work on Twitter and at TraumaLaw or TraumaInformedLaw.org. So I'm going to get right into it. Helgi and I had a conversation about trauma-informed practice and how it is that lawyers should and could build a sustainable practice for themselves, for their clients, and, of course, for their colleagues Oh, thanks for joining me today. And can you maybe just share with me a little bit about, as a lawyer, what got you interested in the area of trauma and trauma informed approaches? Oh, thanks, Marina. I'm I'm really happy to be here,
1: and I'm so happy that you created this podcast. Um, I think what got me interested in trauma informed law is a few things. I mean, I'm always interested in hearing why people went to law school, and so for me, um, this is a longer story. um, which I can go into some other time maybe, but there was a a crime that occurred in my family. And so that kind of was in the background. And then um, when I went to law school, I remember sitting in criminal law class and um, hearing about the cases. And it was as if the people involved in the case on all sides, it was like their story ended with the case, uh, the decision coming down. And so, and that wasn't my experience. So I kind of remember thinking, well, isn't isn't there more? I remember looking up a the name of a person involved in a case and wondering what happened to them after. And then, as I went through my conventional legal career, I found that uh, the same kind of questions kept coming up from uh, clients or other lawyers. Questions like, uh, you know, why did this happen in my case? It felt like people were being jerks. It felt like like my lawyer was a jerk. Or um, I would started helping some people pro bono with sexual assault cases and um, questions coming up around like, why do people see things this way? Why am I not believed or even heard? Why do these things keep happening over and over again? And so I kind of, I started to think about law more like, how would we think about it if we were running a hospital? And so, you know, if if I were working in a hospital and someone came to me and said, hey, I sent my friend who I love to your hospital and they." were more hurt than they were helped by what they got there, I would really have to reflect on what I was doing there
0: and why. You know how doctors have like the Hippocratic oath, right? Do you feel that lawyers should have the same uh, duty imposed upon them or professional obligation? It's hard for me to answer for all lawyers. I know what
1: I feel inside. And what I feel inside is that I, as a lawyer or now I'm a legal consultant, I want to work in a way where I do not do unnecessary harm, right? Like sometimes we do need to argue or assert certain points or act in a way that escalates something because that's in the best interests of our client or their rights. But there are many instances where I can choose. I can choose my response and I don't need to do unnecessary harm. I can act in a way that is sensitive to the
0: needs of everyone involved. How do you think trauma-informed approaches can benefit the legal system broadly? So not just courts, not just uh, like a solicitor's practice, but all participants that you would see within a legal system.
1: I remember, I think you wrote an article uh, and it was published in one of the legal magazines. I forget which one. And you were talking about vicarious trauma. I feel like trauma is a word that people don't like to hear at first and it's difficult to hear. It's uh, Brian Stevenson, uh, uh, a lawyer in the U.S., talks about uh, justice, to pursue justice, we need to do things that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. And so trauma is this kind of hidden gem in an odd way for lawyers because it's inconvenient and uncomfortable to hear about at first that we might actually experience impact, even hearing a story about a client's trauma when we're not directly involved. But yet when we understand how, trauma affects the brain, how it affects us, how it affects our clients, it can really help. It can help give us more options in a case. It can help give us more options in a legal system. Like for instance, if back to the hospital analogy, and let's say that hospital is dealing with sexual assault cases, it can give us options other than 95% of the cases don't quote, succeed in terms of a verdict that reflects what the survivor may have wished to bring forward. I feel like it can... It can give us more options. It can really open up the way that we look at the system and it can make practice more sustainable for lawyers, right? We A question I often get, and I think we've talked about this, is you know, people looking for another way to practice or a way out. And what about sustainable practice? So I feel like knowing about trauma and knowing about its impact makes practice more sustainable potentially for individual lawyers and also the system as a whole.
0: Vicarious trauma is not something that lawyers talk about. It's It doesn't seem to be within their consciousness. And I'm curious about what you think about why that is and what it is that lawyers and adjudicators can do to change that.
1: Yeah, it's a big question. I'm, I'm going to mix metaphors here. And so I was thinking about um, speaking with you today and I was thinking about how lawyers are kind of trained like boxers, or at least I felt like I was trained as if i were going to be a boxer and so to put the gloves on and go into the ring and fight and you know assess the situation and find the different ways to punch and and but i was never we are never taught i think in law school to take our gloves off and even to restore or to seek physio when we are punched ourselves or when we're sideswiped by something and so there is a relentlessness to the nature of our training in terms of how we're taught to argue and argue again and argumentation as the default strategy. And so there are many other strategies that we can use in our toolkits. And so if you put those boxers into a hospital and they're running the hospital, you know, what kind of patient care or bedside manner or even surgery are you getting when all we have are people with their gloves on? And so sometimes I notice that myself. I notice in a you know, let's say a negotiation, the negotiation will be over and I myself will still be somehow in fight mode and someone would ask me an innocuous question and I may still be in argument mode. I've still got my gloves on. And so I need myself to pause and go, oh, okay, argument is done. I can now take my gloves off. Here are the other ways I can work and communicate.
0: Yeah, that's a really Really good point. And I would say I've seen lawyers stay in fight mode long after a trial ends and becoming adversarial or even sometimes conflict seeking then becomes just a way of practice. What would you say to lawyers and law firms, particularly like law firms who have a real um, robust articling program? To begin conversations around vicarious trauma, how to embrace that, where to begin? The word
1: that comes to mind as you asked me that question is the word uh, debriefing. And so I think most other service professions across the board, whether it's uh, healthcare, psychology, or even service industries like food and beverage, there's a kind of a debriefing practice where people get together after and say, oh, how did that go? And how did that work for you? What did you notice in the clients and how they were responding? And we really haven't yet incorporated that meaningfully into legal practice. And so articling programs, you know, they often have mentorship uh, programs and then work assignment, monthly meetings, weekly meetings. And so even this simple debriefing over coffee, how you know the trauma-informed question, the one that is popularized by Dr. Bruce Perry is, you know. Instead of asking what's wrong with you, asking what did you experience, how are you doing, how are things going, and asking those questions in a very meaningful way, and being open to hearing about and speaking about their own experience, lawyers' own experiences of mental health and trauma impact. You know, saying for instance, "Oh, I found myself in fight mode even after that ended," or "I found myself not sleeping after that case didn't go as I planned." So, I think making that space and making it meaningful. And I'm going to be really real. We have to reward it in some way, right? Our system, legal system is set up to reward winning whatever that's perceived to be. And so there needs to be an incentive around it. It can't be seen, I think, as it is now as a loss where, you know, oh, um, that person was, was weak or was, you know, couldn't put on their gloves for that extra hour that day. It needs to be rewarded in some way.
0: I would say some law firms might say, well, you know, we don't get paid for debriefing. We don't get paid. We can't bill the client to take care of our emotional health. Anytime we spend debriefing or talking about feelings takes away from our billable hours. What would you say to folks who come from
1: that perspective? Yeah, I think it's possible to challenge that from two perspectives. One is now we have more data that is being gathered and emerging in terms of looking at law as a series of of patterns as opposed to just case by case. And so, you know, a debrief is also about what worked here, right? What it doesn't need to exclude the things that worked here in terms of what allowed us to be compensated. Compensation isn't off the table. It can be part of it. It can be part of how we're working. Efficiently, effectively, sustainably. And for some reason, I'm reminded that I was uh, talking to someone who had worked with the World Bank, and they had suggested that, you know, looking at reducing trauma impact in the world, particularly among women, among mothers, this actually increases, I don't want to look at it this way, and this is not my primary way of looking at it, but economic productivity right? So people can't be productive in the same way at the same time as that they're on the end, the wrong end of the boxing glove, right? And so linking those in a more, in a heartfelt way, not just a numbers way, um, I think could help there. And I'm sure there's data around it, if
0: people need to be convinced, as lawyers always do. What are some little steps that people can take or organizations can take. And I say little steps because you and I both know, you know, radical transformation, highly unlikely within the legal profession.
1: Yeah, I think the smallest step that I end up speaking with people about is using that question. What have you experienced? What has the client experienced? What happened to them? And so uh, you don't necessarily need to announce a program. You can just start asking that question yourself. So, I mean, that's kind of how I started way back. Um, when I was, um, was a grade one, embarrassingly, when I started thinking about law school, right? And so, you know, what happened here? What did people experience? And so if I could change only one thing and one phrase, I would change the difficult client conversation that I think end up, ends up being had in the back office or over coffee, you know, oh, wow, that client was difficult. And so it's not even necessary to argue with it and put on your boxing gloves The simple change that can be made is, oh, I wonder what they were experiencing, right? I wonder what was going on. And just asking that question. I mean, I once had a conversation with someone who told me about um, the fact that they had just regained employment after having been in prison. And somehow I asked the question, it kind of popped out before I could stop myself What did you experience? What happened? And they said, Oh, actually, all of the men in my family have been to prison. And so what if we had that as a part of our criminal law courses or part of our debriefing conversations? What did the client experience before the case? What did they experience after? And so a lot of these, the smallest things that people can do are, are around these. Um, another one that comes to mind is there's another unstated assumption. Trust me because I'm a lawyer, Right. As opposed to knowing that, oh, I actually, this person, this client doesn't know me. uh, It's for me to earn their trust and establish a sense of safety. So, really small things like that, things that can be summarized in a few words. That's
0: interesting. So, just changing the conversation around the difficult client, I really like that. That I think is key because it's a starting place, it's changing a conversation, and anyone can begin there, whether you're in a law school working at a law society, in a law firm, you can begin there about how you approach and perceive difficult clients.
1: The thing that can happen in debriefing is that question can be, can be flipped. Oh, so you had an experience where a, a client appeared to you to be difficult. What did you experience about that? How did, how did that happen for you? did things need to be repeated? Did they not answer a question? How did that show up for you? And so it can address the vicarious part too, without even using those words, without even saying trauma
0: or vicarious, right? I think that's really brilliant. So you could begin to introduce these concepts and these ideas without even attaching those words, like vicarious or trauma to it, which those words alone likely carry a ton of stigma or ideas that some folks might be resistant against. So that's really interesting. Um, It's really about reframing your language and reframing your approach.
1: So I kind of came up for a presentation I did around uh, adverse childhood experiences in San Francisco. I kind of came up uh, with a list of these covert questions we could ask. And so um, one also that we don't necessarily ask is, what are the client's strengths? right? Like what if we started either a debriefing or a client meeting with, instead of the law school style of the problem, the issues, the likelihood of winning or losing, instead of telling the client immediately what all the problems are, what all the obstacles are, what about taking a strengths-based approach? So for people
0: who are not familiar with that language, a strength-based approach, how would you describe that?
1: I would describe that as um, taking a step back uh, from the case and the client, perceiving them as a client and l- looking at the situation from a very human perspective and asking ourselves and the client, what do I offer here? What do I bring? What, what helps me in this situation? And it could be a very human thing like the client is taking this case very seriously. It's important to them, it has meaning to them. That is a strength. In, you know, and that's, that never comes up as a, on a law school exam. Or as an issue or part of the problem. And that can be really motivating for clients.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking back to sustainability, your comments on sustainability and how incorporating a conversation within the workday about particular, like challenging cases or challenging content um, to include debriefing, et cetera. What would you say to, let's say, the law student who? decided to go into law school because they're very passionate about justice for children uh, within the context of a family law practice. Let's say they know they want to be a family law lawyer. Maybe they experienced like a horrible custody battle when their parents divorced, etc. And they're like, no, there has to be a better way. I'm, I'm going to go into family law and I'm going to find a better way. What would you say to that law student in terms of things they ought to turn their mind to, to ensure their own sustainability and their own well-being as they get into a practice area that can be quite emotional, quite draining and quite challenging.
1: One piece of advice that I would begin with, and again, this is something we don't talk about in law school and sometimes not in the health system, is I would um, suggest that they look at what is energizing for them what gives them energy, what feels motivating and what feels heavy or like it is not motivating. And so I think for practice sustainability, I think of the environment as a model, right? Where is your sun and your water and your fertilizer coming from? And really when we look at the model we're taught, you know, lawyers is supposed to be reasonable people negotiating with reasonable people and we're supposed to just keep punching until somebody wins. And that's not really how it works. There are all these preconditions of food and sleep and movement and healthy relationships and mental health and uh, some kind of connection, I believe, with mindfulness and introspection, and reflection, and all of these things are preconditions. And so I would say, look at those preconditions as well as what gives you energy and what does not in this and to track those kind of patterns. And there are a lot of, um, there's an emerging dialogue around this. There's um, a pilot project that became an official form of court in Florida uh, called Zero to Three. It's the infant court project. Automatically, if a child is under the age of three, there's a different process that happens because they know that the attachment bonds and being present with parents at that age is so fundamentally important for brain and emotional development, all levels of development. And so I would say, okay, take an example of something you aspire to. Maybe this is one and compare and contrast it with your current practice. Like what is happening in that situation that you like, or you find hope in, or you find meaning in, or it gives you energy as a, I want to do that. I want to help people with that versus, you know, what's happening in your own practice. Maybe your own practice is and I certainly experience this, it's, you know, feeling like an email traffic controller and, you know, where every email is a punch and that can feel draining after the 1000th email of the day. And so uh, looking for models that you can incorporate into your own practice that provide that energy and meet those inner conditions as well as the outer conditions.
0: I've met a few younger lawyers who have told me about doing uh, like frontline social justice kind of work that's really quite challenging draining, like emotionally, spiritually, like on all levels. And some have admittedly taken some time away to restore themselves, like a year or two away from the practice to do something else, to regain what it what it was that was drained and then come back to it. But What would you recommend for individuals who are really on the front lines and in the path of traumas of others on a daily basis? What would you say to those folks to to empower them and to help them build a sustainable practice? And not just for themselves, but for their colleagues. Because of course, we know these frontline people, they don't do what they do in isolation. They couldn't do it alone. Because if they did, you know, it wouldn't be long before they would completely be devastated. So for folks who are working on the frontline within an organization that does a lot of engagement with traumatized persons, what would you say to them to build a a sustainable practice.
1: I had, My heart goes out to the front line, especially right now and in the middle of this pandemic, right? We're talking in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is to not fight the river. And so, I mean, the unfortunate reality of our current world is that we don't have a, a magic solution that is, let's say you're working in a, a, a clinic environment where there's a lot of violence that you're dealing with are stories about violence. And so um, we often talk about stopping cycles of violence and, or even shifting them. And so it's very difficult to say this, but it's, you know, we're in a time in our world where it's not going away, it's actually present. And so to, um, there's analogies about trauma, like, you know, thinking that you're not going to be affected by it is like, thinking you're going to walk through the river and not get wet. And so I think as lawyers, we not only want to stay dry while walking the river, we want to stop the river. We want to divert it. And so to be really real about, okay, my job every day is to walk in and out of the river. And it may, by my act of doing this, the river may shift over time. Um, But to have some real anchors around culture shift, which is what we are trying to do in the justice system, I think, right? We're trying to make uh, violence less prevalent, to do that at the same time as holding the other thought, which is, I may in my lifetime not shift the river and
0: still my work can be meaningful.
1: And so that's sort of an overall
0: framework. I love that, that in all your time, you may not be able to shift the river, but your work can still be meaningful. Yeah, I love that. So I'm thinking, Helgi, as we're talking about this, like I see the theme of our conversation really emerging, and that being, how do you develop a sustainable practice? We can't identify individuals uh, by their legal issues. We have to see them as the whole person. And the same applies to ourselves. We're not just lawyers. We're whole, complex people who show up to do advocacy. And so... What's a piece of advice that you would give to folks? And right now, I'm thinking about the young lawyers and the law students about how they can build a sustainable practice that really incorporates a trauma informed approach.
1: I think I would say this is a classic don't do what I did. Um, I think that the way our training works, we're encouraged to leave parts of ourselves out and split ourselves um to kind of live two lives to you know secretly catch up on sleep and then show up at the office pretending like oh the level of hours here doesn't affect me and so if i could go back in time myself i would say to myself don't split yourself don't try and live a double life don't try and pretend like your vacation doesn't involve elder care or dealing with trauma i would you know it, of course we need to Um, respect our own sense of of privacy and who we feel safe speaking with. And
0: yet, would you say boundaries are really critical, Helgi, like to identify them and to stay true to them? Yes. And I think I overdid it.
1: So to have boundaries without overdoing them and having them being ironclad. So um, in terms of advice for creating community, I mean, that community can include clients who want to work in a trauma informed way, right? And so connecting with clients and saying, I, I remember speaking with one client in particular and talking with them about, um, even though it wasn't something we were specifically working on, they asked, Oh, what are you doing on the weekend? And I said, I'm writing this thing about trauma. And then, you know, have you heard of Dr. Nadine Burke Harris and her six points about the ways to prevent trauma impact? And, you know, it, And that led to a sense of community with the client and the client connected me to someone who wanted to write an article about trauma in the legal system. So uh, long story short, to include that and create community with colleagues and also the, the client community.
0: Interesting. So the community that one can create isn't just or doesn't just have to be limited to your office or to your professional environment. I'm now thinking about like, what, if any, value do you see in lawyers or firms partnering with and engaging mental health professionals to come into their environment, work together? Do you think there's space for that, that there should be space for that?
1: I think there should be space for it. And
0: I wish that there
1: were more space for it to just be a regular, normal thing, uh, not pathologizing mental health. I mean, like, come on, our job is to argue and use our brains all day. Of course, that needs to be healthy. Like, to me, that if we were back to the hospital analogy, you know, it's like expecting the surgeons to keep working, but without attending to, are all the tools in the surgery clean and ready to go, right? If we're constantly using our brains and our eyes to read and comprehend and absorb and you know, this should be just really a regular thing, and so expanding it to not just mental health because I think when we use the word mental health, sometimes we think pathology, fixing something, mental well-being, including that meaning-making aspect of things, which for me is part of mental well-being. So I, I just, I think we just can't afford stigma anymore. Is the thing that you know there's still stigma around mental health, and especially when our performance as legal professionals comes through our brains. How does it make any sense at all to leave that off the table? It just makes no sense to me.
0: How do you think bringing a trauma-informed practice benefits the client-lawyer relationship? The usual benefit that I experience
1: when speaking with a client is a sigh of relief. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) um, the client often feels more understood. Um, They often will say more to you because they feel more in alignment that you really do have their back, that you genuinely care. I mean, we do have to have that back to your reference to boundaries. We do have to have boundaries with clients. You know, we can't be taking calls at one in the morning and, you know, offering to help people with their personal things that don't belong as part of their relationship on the weekends. We do need those boundaries. However, you know, sometimes I've had a, a client say, wow, this went in a different direction. I feel so much better about this because we talked about its impact on me, or we talk more broadly about it, or we talked about my strengths. And so usually uh, the benefit to clients in the client relationship is they feel safer, it opens up more options, and there's a closer relationship, so you have more material to work with. Okay, so I see definitely
0: the benefit for the client. Um, Ultimately, how will that improve the way a lawyer interviews a client or the way they approach the quote-unquote difficult client. and I also recognize, Helgi, like in fairness to you and everyone who um, allows me to interview them, that this is really an emerging approach uh, to the practice of law and that we don't always have the answers. We might have a lot of ideas, but it's something that's constantly evolving until, you know, until it becomes like a best practice type of thing. So
1: one thing I did um, experience and I I like to frame things in terms of my own experience because I actually think that's sometimes the most compelling. And, you know, in in this area, you're right, it's emerging. So it's more difficult to draw in a study. And so when there is a situation of the the difficult client, um, you know, the client isn't responding or the, you know, uh, what might be labeled as difficult when I am able to take a step back and open up my perspective on not just, the client, but the situation, the case, myself, then I'm often able to see something that was obscured by my focus on getting the answer, right? So in law we're trained, we, we need to, it's like we're chasing a ball, get the answer, win it, and this very sequential linear way of pursuing something. And so one time I was working on this is actually about a paper, working on an interview in connection with the paper. And I found myself asking something in a technical way. And so I was able to take a step back and realize that there was a a stress-based learning going on. Client was learning in a survival mode. There's actually some writing about this survival learning. And so once I took a step back and just re-asked the question very casually, then I was able to get, you know, instead of chasing the ball, I was, I was still not getting the ball, but I was I was a step further ahead. And so was the client, right? We were getting somewhere as opposed to constantly being um, left without the answer. And so that was a real benefit. And, you know, it took some time. There was a opening of a conversation that needed to happen over the course of a few days, or, or I think it turned into a little while longer than that. It ended up going somewhere. Conversations can go somewhere that would otherwise have nowhere to go.
0: It sounds to me like what you're describing is really that there are benefits for lawyers who engage with clients in a way where they adapt the way they engage. They're flexible in their engagement versus... following maybe a strict script, very precise, right? And so if you just kind of let go of that a little bit and be a little bit more, uh, maybe less formal or less rigid, then what presents might be everything you need.
1: Absolutely. Everything you need and then some. And um, I'm reminded of a word Brian Stevenson uses in terms of how he works with his clients. And he talks about proximity, getting close to the client. He doesn't mean that by like, you know, helping them go to the grocery store. Obviously he means that by like helping, helping himself to understand their social context, what their experience is, but in a different way than just asking them what happened to them, like really being in alignment with the client's own mindset or way of thinking about something. And so back to the learning point, like, Putting myself in the client's shoes of oh okay after having been in an experience where my rights were violated by the state I now have to fill out this fifty point questionnaire and interact with the government in you know the very one that uh, ended up violating my rights like putting myself in that position then I can understand much more why there might be um, need to be some type of accommodation around learning or responding
0: I can understand them much better. were to be making like the argument to say this is how trauma informed practice is going to help you sustain your practice over the long haul, sustain yourself, sustain your relationships, what would you say?
1: I would say I would rent a billboard. No, I would say I would rent a billboard for the CBI conference. And um, I would say that uh, lawyer well being that affects practice sustainability, issues with lawyer well being is not a mystery. I really don't think it's a mystery. It's difficult to speak about. um, And uh, I think that trauma plays a huge role in it. Bessel van der Kolk, trauma expert, talks about trauma as a silent epidemic. We are not exempt from this. So we look at with lawyers, higher suicide rates, higher rates of addiction, including alcoholism, higher rates of uh, of mental health uh, challenges. And so when we're constantly expected to argue all day, often in isolation, and without any type of downtime, when downtime doesn't count for anything without rest, then of course there are going to be these issues. And so I think that you know, when we work with trauma, we have a much greater chance of succeeding in creating a, a sustainable. Approach to legal practice than if we don't? Like right now, what if we were not talking about COVID-19 and all of the symptoms and issues, right? Would we expect to resolve it or, or cancer? We, we, we don't expect to resolve the things we don't talk about, but somehow when it comes to practice sustainability and lower being we think, oh, by talking about the, the, the pieces of the iceberg that we can see above the water, when we talk about those, that's efficient. I don't think it is. I think we need to look at the, the seascape and all of the components of the iceberg underneath the sea level that go on all the time, right? The fact that we're, you know, it's a a given of our jobs that we're just expected to constantly argue and without support and without speaking about mental health.
0: Adopting a trauma-informed practice is really going to minimize mental health risks that we face within this profession. Yeah, and, and
1: have a source of support. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, this conversation has been really insightful. And I know that folks listening are also going to be inspired by the conversation, uh, particularly increasing awareness of mental health risks to those of us who work within the legal profession. And so I guess in closing, Helgi, if there's anything you want to say to the folks listening to us about how they can build a sustainable practice what's the one thing that you would encourage them to do right now?
1: I would encourage them to assess the cost of stigma that they're taking on right now in their lives or their practice. I think it's, if they look at it in terms of anything that is being unspoken, unaddressed, whether that's with themselves, the client, or where they're working, you know, really, if, if they take a look with the question, am I willing to bear the cost of this stigma? Is the cost of this stigma too high? I think right now in the world, the answer is we can't afford stigma anymore. It is, the cost is too high. We need as lawyers to apply our brains and emotional intelligence on an ongoing basis to help people. And especially with this pandemic, stigma needs to be off the table. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I love that you're doing this. It's such an important topic. Well, thank you. Thank you for your support and your encouragement. It's always unwavering. I really appreciate it. Okay. And thanks so much for taking time out to talk with me today about these really important um, concepts, these emerging, brilliant approaches to a, a different way of practicing law um, to encourage sustainability and ultimately safeguard our mental health and the mental health of our colleagues so we can continue to do what we have to do, what we're called to do on a regular basis. So thank you, Helgi. Thank you. Okay. Well, that was our episode for today. I really hope you enjoyed it. Build a sustainable practice, people. Build a sustainable practice. You won't regret it. If you have any thoughts, ideas, questions about today's episode, you can find me on Twitter at Legal Trauma. You can also find me on Instagram at the Trauma-Informed Lawyer. Of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. And I would really love to hear from you. Next time when I'm back, we're going to have a conversation about Indigenous intergenerational trauma and cultural humility. I think right now when we're having these conversations about systemic racism, it's a good time to introduce that subject. So until next time, take care, everyone.